I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Let's begin with a prayer. Father God, we uh, love you and we thank you for your son. And we're grateful that he gave his life that we might live. And we pray that we will walk in faith and walk in love and help us on the program tonight. Bless the volunteers, people who do so much to keep things moving and going forward. And we just thank you and we're grateful for our audience here and wherever they may, may be tuning in. And uh, bless us this week as it's hectic here in the U.S. with holiday season and help us to relax, look at you, get along, love others, and uh, just try to take a deep breath and exhale from all this excitement and look to you, Lord. So use us and be with us now in Jesus' name, amen. How about a something from the I'm so bored with direction? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we know that it's called the chapter on Christian love, agape love. That's Christian love. It's very different than the other forms of love that we understand. At verses 8 through 10, we read something really interesting. Paul says, Christian love never fails. I'm paraphrasing that Christian love. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And from there, Paul continues on and he starts telling us, put away childish things and become men, become grown-ups, become adults, become women. Most of the chapter in its discussion on Christian love is really describing putting away selfishness, the things that we do, self-centeredness. All the uh, elements of love uh, really are the antithesis to self and self-centeredness. And behaviors and replace them with behaviors of living in selfless love for the benefit of others, for the other. And so when Paul gets the elements and he starts talking about prophecies and tongues and knowledge, he says plainly that they're going to fail, not that they're bad, but they're going to fail, they're going to cease, they're going to vanish when that which is perfect comes. And in terms of knowledge, full knowledge comes, full knowledge will come when we die. So there will be no need for tongues or prophecies or opinions on matters, which we only know in part here. There won't be any need for them because we will know fully. We'll have the perfect tongue. We'll have the perfect prophecies. We'll have the perfect knowledge on everything when we die. So opinions on matters, Paul makes it clear that we only know in part. We only know in part, right? So I would suggest that if we only know something, everything, all things, in part, then we are lacking the full picture, and we are either ignorant in all areas, we are ignorant, or we are at least partly wrong on everything because we don't have all knowledge. Therefore, we would do better uh, and I take this from what Paul says here, if we operate not by knowledge, 
uh, or, or these other things that are going to go away, but we operate by something that is going to transcend and go with us into the life after. And that would be the Christian love that he is describing. So as stated, Christian love detailed here in chapter 13 is, is a matter of putting God and others ahead of self. Listen to how Paul describes it. He says, this love suffers long. Okay, so that's, let, yourself is suffering a long time. It is kind. That means yourself, which can, we can all be mean, is choosing in Christian love to be kind. So it's all about the self dying and doing what we do for others. It doesn't envy. Uh, it doesn't promote itself. It's not rash. It doesn't behave badly. It doesn't seek its own welfare. Again, self. It's not about the self. It isn't easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in truth. And listen to this last part, and I've emphasized this before on the show. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. So this brings me to the point that I'm trying to make. Listen closely to this. If the heavenly currency, imagine it's a stack of cash. If the heavenly currency is love, because God is love, and the presence of it makes one rich, okay, since everything else is going to go away, and love, as defined by 1 Corinthians, is synonymous with selflessness, then earthly currencies, the things that operate and pay and pay the way here, earthly currencies, what really pays the bills, stay with me, seems to be built on non-Christian love and non-selflessness. Try to think about this. So real agape Christian love, true selfless love here has very little buying power in this world. Um, other than feeding the spirit of the person who is exhibiting it, that it does a lot of good for, for the individual and for others receiving it. But in the world, I just don't think believers can expect genuine, selfless Christian love to be rewarded in this world. Quite the opposite. It just doesn't work that way. No matter, we talk about, oh, you just need love, we just need love, we just need love. But true, it's got to be true Christian love is always trampled upon here. It doesn't have much buying power in this world. What does have buying power in this world is pride and self-centeredness and selfishness and self-absorbed love. This is the currency, so to speak, that pays the world, pays the bills here in this economy. So listen, if a person actually and truly lives by a guppy, a guppy and or polywog love, uh, they will not find that this world will reward them. Let me make my case. It's all, the world will only take advantage of you if you're truly humble. It will only take advantage of you if you're always kind. It will take, this world will take advantage of you. Look, look at Jesus. It will abuse you if you are actually exhibiting and living by agape love. I mean, if you're long-suffering, people will take advantage of you. They won't pay you back. You're long-suffering. You'll wait forever to get your money back. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't envy. It doesn't promote itself. You don't promote yourself in this world. Who's going to promote you? Nobody. So, you know, you know, people say, oh, he's so kind, he's so humble, but probably not the aggressive guy we want in that job. Things like that. It, it's not rash. It's not easily for, provoked. It's not... Think evil. This isn't how the world operates. So when you are really, truly loving in this world, you can't expect our forgiveness will be trampled on. People will want your forgiveness for everything and they'll just keep taking advantage of it. Look at what happened with Jesus. So it will repeatedly take our kindness and it will capitalize on our, our humility. So why I get into the point here on the board, let me just finish this little uh, thing up here. So the way I've been thinking about it and see what you guys think, the more self here, the more reward here. I think that is a true, I think that's a true statement. The more love, and then that's true Christian love here, the less reward 
here. Okay? I think those two statements, if you think about them and you can bring them into yourself, you can, you'll begin to understand that is probably the way it will work out. However, the more self here, opposite, the less reward currency there, meaning after this life. Okay? It's a simple syllogism. It, it, the more self here, the more reward here, and the less reward there. That's just how it will work. And we could go through all the theological and all the doctrinal points in Scripture, and if I had the time, we could talk through it all about why that is and how Jesus always talked about these types of things. But then the more love here, though it doesn't pay in this world, it really doesn't if it's really... The more there. And so really what we're doing as Christians and as people is we are saying... I'm banking on an eternal retirement plan. I am putting all my money into a heavenly 401k, and I am not going to expect to have anything when I'm in this world. If you think about it, you have a chance to go help a poor person move their garbage out of their lot, and, or to go play golf with a bunch of businessmen because there's a deal on hand. So it, it, one is going to serve you, one is going to serve another who can't pay you back in this world. And the scriptures are full of examples as when you do the, when you do the first, that's where the rewards are. That's when Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't lay your treasures up where moth and dust and rust will corrode them. And, you know, having been a stockbroker for, for many years, I understand risk versus return. I understood rewards and all that stuff. And bottom line, it's I can't understand laying up much in this life except relationships and then trying to be Christ to others. Uh, we're going to fail, but that first Corinthian love, it's going to pay the best return for people who truly possess it. All right? So let's go on with our show from last week. And tonight's going to bug some of you because I'm going to read a lot of quotes. But I think they're very important in the body that we're trying to build up of information that is, I'm hoping, snowballing against what I perceive as a very tenuous, difficult, obstinate thing that happens with us. And that is, there's just no choice. God did it. God did it all. He's done every single thing. There's no choice on my part. So it's an enormous debate as we've talked about the gospel on free will. This is part two. And we've been talking about the good news and the question we've asked is, how is it received? Freely by you or is it put upon you? We noted that there are a couple camps within Christianity today. One says there's no free will. Remember last week, that's the monergist view. Mon, as in monarch, God says this, it happens to you, that's it. You didn't choose, you had no part in it. That's the monergist view. And then there's also the synergist view, which says God sends it out down one lane of the highway, and the other side is you have to receive it. God, God brings the delivery to the door, you have to open the door. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He stands at the door and knocks. Doesn't say any opens the door. He stands there and knocks, and you have to open it. That's a synergist view. So the monergist position says God elects those whom he will, you've all heard this before, to receive the good news, and therefore he excludes others who he just doesn't choose. The synergist position says that receiving the good news is that two-way street. We also pointed out that the monergist view, listen closely, challenged this, did not exist until around 380 A.D. That's the time of the life of a guy named Augustine. We could talk about that, and maybe we will someday, about how Augustine was influenced toward the monergist view. And that prior to him, prior to 380 A.D., um, early church scholars and writers all had the synergist view. Okay? Now, this is really important because the greatest minds and some of the greatest Christians today have fully embraced the monergist view. And I hear the rhetoric come out, uh, you know, and we, we, we recite monergist rhetoric without really thinking about it. So these quotes, they're going to get a little heavy because some of them are long. 
but they're really important if you try to hear what the early church leaders had to say. Now, my argument, as I presented last week, was the closer we get to the apostles, if, this, if my left hand is the apostles, the cross here, Jesus and the apostles, the closer in history we can get to them with quotes from Christians, the closer I believe we are to the apostles' view. The further away, 380 AD, 380 years after Christ was born, Augustine comes in with the monergist view. To me, it says that view is not as viable unless Augustine knew something that all the other church believers and, uh, didn't know. Okay, So let me walk through the quotes, and we're going to start and they're all about free will. And some of, the, some of these writers, some of these are gems. Some of them are heavy rocks. But let's start with a guy named Justin Martyr. Now, last week we started right up next to the apostles. Now we're out a little bit. We're at 100 AD. So we're 70 years, uh, so 68 years after Jesus died. All right, Justin Martyr said, God, wishing men and angels to follow his will, resolved to create them free to do righteousness, possessing reason that they may know by whom they are created and through whom they, not existing formerly, do now exist, and with a law that they should be judged by him if they do anything contrary to right reason. And of ourselves we, men and angels, shall be convicted of having acted sinfully unless we repent beforehand. But if the word of God foretells that some angels and men shall certainly be punished, it did so because it foreknew that they would be unchangeably wicked, but not because God had created them so, not because God had created them so, so that if they repent, all who wish for it can obtain mercy from God. That's from his second apology of the Christian address to the Roman Senate. This is another one. But lest some suppose from what has been said by us that we say that whatever happens happens by a fatal necessity because it is foretold as known beforehand, this too we explain. We have learned from the prophets and we hold it to be true that punishments and chastisements and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions. Since if it be not so, but all things happen by fate, neither is anything at all in our own power. For if it be fated that this man, for example, be good and this other evil, neither is the former meritorious nor the latter to be blamed. And again, unless the human race have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions of whatever kind they be. But that it is by free choice, they both walk uprightly and stumble, thus we demonstrate. We see the same man making a transition to opposite things. This is a really important point, if you can think it through. We see the same man making a transition to opposite things, good and evil. Now, if it had been fated that he were to be good or bad, he could never have been capable of both the opposites nor of so many transitions. I've got to stop there. You know what he's saying there? If God fates us to be good, we're always going to be good. If he fates us to be bad, we're always going to be bad. But, he, but Justin Martyr is saying, we find that there's transitions within every individual of good and bad, good and bad, good and bad. And this shows evidence of choice. You get that? That's amazing. He goes on. But not even would some be good and others bad since we thus make fate the cause of evil and exhibit her as acting in opposition to herself. Or that which has been already stated would seem to be true and neither virtue, virtue nor vice is anything but that things are only reckoned good or evil by opinion, which, as the true word shows, is the greatest impiety and wickedness. But this we assert is inevitable fate, that those who choose the good have worthy rewards, and they who choose the opposite have their merited awards. For not like other things, as trees and quadrupeds, 
which cannot act by choice, did God make man. For neither would he be worthy of reward or praise, did he not of himself choose the good, but were created for this end. Nor, if he were evil, would he be worthy of punishment, not being evil of himself, but being able to be nothing else than what he was made. In his dialogue with Trifo, uh, I think it's Trifo, he said, For God, wishing both angels and men who were endowed with free will and at their own disposal to do whatever he had strengthened each to do, made them so that if they choose the things acceptable to himself, he would keep them free from death and from punishment. But if they did evil, he would punish each as he sees fit. It's clear. There's no, there's no wiggle room in these. And I'm going to go on just for emphasis sake because we got to get it in the can. Uh, next one. Also dialogue with Trifo. But yet, since he knew that it would be good, he created both angels and men free to do that which is righteous. And he appointed periods of time during which he knew it would be good for them to have the exercise of free will. And because he likewise knew it would be good, he made general and particular judgments. Each one's freedom of will, however, being guarded. And in the beginning, he made the human race with the power of thought and choosing the truth and doing right so that all men are without excuse before God. You know, this flies. I know this for many of you it doesn't matter, but this is flying in the face of the determinist and the monergist view that is so prevalent today that, you know, and we even say it, and I know it sounds good. Oh, it's just God. It's all God. It's all God. We're going to read a quote in a minute that says that is, that's an affront to Scripture. And I know this is out there, but think about this. Of course, none of it's available or possible without God. Nothing good in us would happen without his spirit moving through us. But we do have the choice to say no to the spirit and yes to the flesh. And that is what's being pointed out. He said in, uh, he said next one, unless the human race has the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not responsible for their actions. It's a tremendous quote. Quote, we maintain that each man acts rightly or sins by his free choice. Since God in the beginning made the race of angels and men with free will, they will su justly suffer in eternal fire the punishment of whatever sins they have committed. If you have comment on that line, eternal fire, write me because what he's saying is they're going to suffer loss in the eternal fire. The eternal fire is God's fire and they're going to suffer loss in that. They, we will. That's a biblical uh, that's biblically evidenced, okay? So you can't disagree. Delaney, I'm going to jump down to the one, or Kathy Maggs, that says, I have proved, I have proved in what has been said that those who are foreknown to be righteous, whether men or angels, are not made wicked by God's fault. Rather, each man is what he will appear to be through his own fault, okay? Let me jump to another author. His name's Tatian, 110 to 171 A.D., the Logos, before the creation of men, was the framer of angels. And each of these two orders of creatures, men and angels, was made free to act as it pleased, not having the nature of good, which again is with God alone, but is brought to perfection in men through their freedom of choice, in order that the bad men may be justly punished, but the just man be deservedly praised." Such is the constitution of things in reference to angels and men. Also, our free will has destroyed us. Nothing evil has been created by God. We ourselves have manifested wickedness. That was an address to the Greeks by Tatian. Uh, Athenagoras said, Just as with men who have freedom of choice as to both virtue and vice, so it is among the angels. Some free agents you will observe, such as they were created by God, continued in those things for which God had made and over which he had ordained them, but some outraged both the constitution of their nature and the government entrusted to them. Heavy. Then uh, Irenaeus, now these are long, and after them we get a bunch of short ones which are really good. But uh, I don't know how much time we have, but I'm going to read them. Okay, Irenaeus said, 
Delaney, jump to the Irenaeus that is uh, the point, okay? He said, this expression of our Lord, how often would I have gathered thy children together and you would not set forth the ancient law of human liberty because God made man a free agent from the beginning, possessing his own power, even as he does his own soul, to obey the behests of God voluntarily and not by compulsion of God, not by compulsion, for there is no coercion with God, but a good will towards us is presently with him continually. Uh, that's Irenaeus. A, a continually good will is with him for us continually, but he lets us choose. He goes on, and therefore does he give good counsel to all. And in man, as well as in angels, he has placed the power of choice, for angels are rational beings, so that those who had yielded obedience might justly possess what is good, indeed, given indeed by God, but preserved by themselves. Given indeed by God what is good, but preserved by themselves. On the other hand, those who have not obeyed shall with justice be found in not be not found in possession of the good and shall receive condign punishment for God did kindly bestow on them that which was good but they themselves did not diligently keep it nor deem it worth something precious but poured contempt upon his supereminent goodness rejecting therefore the good as it were spewing it out they shall all deservedly incur the just judgment of God, which also the Apostle Paul testifies in his epistle to the Romans, where he says, But thou dost despise the riches of his goodness and patience and long-suffering, being ignorant that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But according to the harshness of an impenitent heart, thou treasurest to thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But glory and honor, he says, to everyone that doeth good. God, therefore, has given them that which is good, as the apostle tells us in this epistle, and they who work it shall receive glory and honor, because they have done that which is good when they had it in their power not to do it. But those who shall not receive the, ju the just judgment of God, because they did not work good when they had it in their power so to do. Again, it's all there in your power to do it. Now, we are talking about, I, I believe, in the context of Scripture, we're talking about both sides of the coin. We're talking about people who the gospel's been offered to them, and, and they choose to open that door. Jesus is knocking. And it's also talking about clearly, with, when we look at the parables of Christ, those who have received Christ and yet decide never to bear fruit. This is a harsh message in evangelical Christianity today because of the Jesus-only focus about him being Savior, but there's, there's not that next step into the walk. And because of that, messages like this, these quotes I'm reading, are hard on people. They don't want to hear them. And so they go to, they go to places that, don't, that won't teach this. They go to places that will scratch their itching ears and help them feel like, you know, all's well. Now, the, the balance in this is it is God working through us. It is him and his goodness that is his spirit that is working through us. So it's not by compulsion. And this is where it gets dicey because people start burdening themselves with their own self-righteousness, which we see all through this state. It, it's not that, but it is dying to self and it is dying to flesh and picking up the cross daily and trying to let Christ's spirit out in and through you. In that, we have a choice. Every single day, we have a choice. And if you don't choose the spirit over the flesh in the long run, collectively, over the course of your life, this is what these guys are talking about. Don't fool yourself, you know? And it's a hard message for Christians to hear. But I would not be any kind of, I wouldn't be honest in my own understanding of scripture and I think I would be a failure of a teacher if I didn't bring out that this other idea that everything is done by him and you don't, you know, don't have to worry about it or, you know, whatever. I, I think it's misinterpreted. Uh, so, uh, Delaney, I'm going to go on. Uh, we'll get to the Irenaeus. Can you jump forward past the seventh conclusion? Mary's going to kill me. 
to Tertullian, 160 to 220 A.D. It is not the part of good and solid faith to refer all things to the will of God. Tertullian, it is not part of good and solid faith to refer all things to the will of God as to make us fail to understand that there is something within our power. I mean, I say it's all God. And, and, and I'm the one who's preaching this. But I understand what he's saying there, you know. Uh, let me go on. Tertullian says, I find then that man was constituted free by God. He was master of his own will and power. Man is free with the will either for obedience or resistance. He said, you must necessarily correspond to the seed from which you sprang. This is, this is, uh, this is getting, little, uh, getting Mormonish here. You must necessarily correspond to the seed from which you sprang. If indeed it is true that the originator of our race and our sin, Adam, willed the sin that he committed. Clement of Alexandria, 153 to 217. I'm going to stop with Clement of Alexandria. Listen to these. They're good. He says, So in no respect is God the author of evil, but since free choice and inclination originate sins, punishments are rightly inflicted. Punishments are rightly inflicted. This goes against the whole idea that man has no choice. God chooses who he will save. He chooses who he will not save as well. And those who he does not save burn forever, suffering immeasurably in hell because they were created for it. That thing I just read to you, that quote, is absolutely in opposition to that. Let me read it again. So in no respect is God the author of evil, but since free choice and inclination originate sins, since free choice and inclination originate sins, punishments are rightly inflicted. This is talking about the God I know from Scripture. This now is bringing in a, a more reasonable God who is loving, and we can see it. Uh, he also says, also, this was the law from the first that virtue should be the object of voluntary choice. Virtue should be the object of voluntary choice. He says, a man by himself working and toiling at freedom from sinful desires achieves nothing. Make sure you hear this. A man by himself working and toiling at freedom from sinful desires achieves nothing. That's so important. But if he plainly shows himself to be very eager and earnest about this, he attains it by the addition of the power of God. So important. It's the only way. God works together with willing souls. Willing. That means there's a will to go or a will to not. God works with willing souls. If you're not willing, you will do what your will is. If you're willing, you will do what his will is. That's how it works. But if the person abandons his eagerness, the spirit from God is also restrained to save the unwilling is the act of one using compulsion, but to save the willing, that of one showing grace. That's a, that's a, that's a really, that's a borderline quote, really, when, you, when I think about it. He says, neither praise nor condemnation, neither rewards nor punishments are right if the soul does not have the power of choice and avoidance if evil is involuntary. He says again, we have believed and are saved by voluntary choice. That's Clement of Alexandria. He said, each one of us who sins with his own free will chooses punishment. So the blame lies with him who chooses. God is without blame. That makes sense now. Now I understand. It's, looks at, blame lies with us. It lies with me. It doesn't lie with God. I die, I'm not going to say to God, well, you allowed me to be born in a world where my parents were argued and this and that, and so I, uh-uh, I don't believe it. I really believe we all have it. Neither praises nor censures, neither rewards nor punishments are right if the soul does not have the power of inclination and disinclination, and if evil is involuntary. In no respect is God the author of evil, 
But since free choice and inclination originate sins, punishments are justly inflicted. Another one. We have heard from the scriptures that self-determining choice and refusal have been given by the Lord to men. Therefore, we rest in the infallible criterion of faith, manifesting a willing spirit since we have chosen life. Again, to obey or not to obey is in our own power, provided we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Now that makes sense too, and it's in harmony with Romans 1. You know, if you're born ignorant, I mean, Plato talked about this in the Republic. If someone's born ignorant, someone's born uh, disabled, mentally disabled, or whatever the, uh, the level of your uh, knowledge is, you're not going to be judged uh, in opposition to that. You're not going to be said you should have been uh, living by the standards of a scholar. God is fair, but he, he says, you know, it's within our own power to obey or not to obey, provided we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Because Paul said himself, I was ignorant in doing this, and so I've received his grace. He says again, sin then is, the vol- is voluntary on my part. I think the church in, is going to grow much better, not grow in terms of numbers, but we are going to grow spiritually if we can start accepting that, that kind of existential responsibility for self, that when we sin, we have chosen to feed our flesh rather than our spirit. It's simple as that for Christians. You know, are you forgiven? You were forgiven a long time ago. Do you have the power to overcome that sin? Not on your own. Do you have the power to overcome the sin with God? You do. Because his spirit is what will lead you to do that. But that has to really be clarified and understood so we can get away from the rhetoric that does nothing to help people and leads away from what these are saying. We're almost done. The Lord clearly shows sins and transgression to be in our own power by describing modes of cure corresponding to the maladies. Love that. Then he says, their estrangement is the result of free choice. Estrangement is the result of free choice. Four more, believing and obeying are in our own power. Next one, nor will he who is saved be saved against his will. Really important one there. For he is not inanimate. But above all, he will speed to salvation voluntarily and of free choice. He will speed to salvation. I love that choice. Two more, one more, choice depended on the man as being free, but the gift depending on God as the Lord. And he gives to those who are willing, are exceedingly earnest, and who ask. So their salvation becomes their own, for God does not compel. I know these things are challenging some of you. I know they'll, but I take those words of those guys and many, many more. I mean, you don't have time. Over the one guy who, who established in 380, Augustine, the idea of the monergist view, and from which Calvin in the 1500s said, okay, I'm going to develop a system of theology that teaches that this is how it looks. And many of the college, Christian colleges today teach the, of that ilk. Next week, we'll continue on and talk about the ramifications of free will relative to the gospel. And let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. And in the meantime, let's take a look at this. and We're going to come back to a call and a few other quotes. We got Mark in Columbia, South Carolina on the line, but we have a question here, and I think I can read through it from Wyatt, and it says, the question is, is love based on God's revealed word, based on scripture, since God is love, that is my question. And what I think he's saying is, do we 
understand what love is based on the word? Is that how, how we understand it? And I would say this. We understand what love is by the Spirit. But we can confirm whether our love is of ourself and for ourself or of God by the Word. So the Spirit, we know, you know, have you ever done a really loving thing that was not of yourself, that you knew it was God leading you to do that thing? When that happens, all you're doing is praising God. You know it had nothing to do with you and you're praising God. That's the Spirit I'm talking about. God is love, Spirit manifests, and you do a selfless, truly selfless, act of love toward another, as, and then you look to Scripture, and you read 1 Corinthians, or you read Ephesians 5, and it shows you what that love looks like, and the Scripture confirms what you learned through the Spirit. I would suggest it's like that. The problem with reversing that, and taking the Scripture and saying, okay, this is what love looks like. First, I'm going to look at the written. Okay, now I'm going to be that. That is religion. And that is where you're, you're walking down the road and, and someone cuts you off and you say, okay, I've read in the word that I'm long-suffering, so, you know, I'm going to be long-suffering. And that may help you. That might be a good starter for you, but true love is not really known until it's by the Spirit within the person. Otherwise, it's just read. You understand the difference? And that's why I say the Spirit is primary and preferential and the word is secondary and referential and not the reverse. Because when we reverse it, we become scribes, we start pointing fingers, we start dividing, and we start trying to live by a written law, which is supposed to be written on our hearts. That's how I would answer that. Mark in Columbia, South Carolina, I wonder if he knows what okra is and collard greens. Mark. Hey. Hey, yeah, turn your... Uh, your uh, system down. Hey, do you know what collard greens are in South Carolina? Collard greens? Do you eat them out there? Uh, some people do, but I'm not originally from here, so I don't eat them too much. Understand, I understand why, too. Uh, <laughs> what up, brother? Hey, uh, I talked with you before. I've, uh, I've got a little, you kind of inspired me to, to, to start a ministry to these uh, missionary kids. Cool. Um, just from watching your show, I've got them calling me from four different areas in my <laughs> near my uh, city. So awesome. I've talked to talked to a lot of them. Um, and Danny's awesome, by the way. Danny up there with you guys. Is Danny here? Um, yeah. Oh, he was here. I'll, we'll tell him. Yeah, is he not with you guys anymore? Oh no, he is. He's just he was here earlier, but uh, he did something with Derek. He's gone now. Okay, good. I got his email, but. Anyway, I'm now they've introduced me to a member. Um, my questions were kind of overwhelming them a little bit, uh -huh. um, but so they've got me talking to a member that lives right near me. So I want to take it um, pretty carefully, so not to uh, uh, discourage them. But we've talked two times, and it's been really awesome. I call it interfaith dialogue because he knows. Uh, that you know, I'm pretty grounded in my faith, and I know a lot about his faith as well. So we've had some good talks, but we're, we're I tried to get him to show me, to demonstrate to me how there could have been an apostasy when Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And we had about a three-hour talk, and he finally admitted that there, there's always been believers, but the priesthood has been taken away, or was taken away. So, you know, I look at Second Peter, or First Peter, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into its marvelous light. That shows me that believers are the same as a priesthood. Yeah. Is that incorrect, or is that the way That's to go? totally correct. Awesome. Yeah, a great thing to use on him now. And, and, and then I would suggest that if that's, if that's not sufficient, then you might go and go to the Hebrews and try to explain to him through Hebrews. And I know somebody who came out of Mormonism through another man sitting down with them at lunch at work and choosing to read the book of Hebrews together. And by the time they were done, the man walked. So it's wow. really important, uh, Mark, relative to priesthood. 
and Jesus being our high priest and all of that. So you might try that too in conjunction if, you, if, you're, if you're so led. Yeah, he was talking about the priesthood as far back as Adam. Yeah. Does that make any sense? No, it, it makes no sense, but they do believe that, they're, uh, that the gospel message was known from Adam on down through all the prophets, uh, and that's proven by their use of uh, Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon uh, in 600 B.C. The Book of Mormon prophets are saying Jesus Christ. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they do believe that Adam and every prophet and every generation from him has known the gospel was coming forward and known the truths of the gospel. So the priesthood didn't, for a Mormon, the priesthood didn't start with the Levitical line after the uh, Exodus, I guess. You know, uh, I don't think so, because I believe, if, I'm, if, if I remember right, I'm getting rusty, Mark, but I think, <laughs> maybe Warren knows, I think that the priesthood, Adam had the priesthood, and I think everyone uh, before, is that right? Or, or, Warren thinks so, and uh, so I don't know, I think that's it. I think they do believe that priesthood was from Adam on down. But the Bible basically says that believers share a royal priesthood, so to me that just debunks the whole thing. It does, especially with his thing saying that there's always been believers, but the priesthood was lost. He's echoing his leaders. That's, that's what they say. And yeah. so, so you've yeah. done a great job in, in, in that uh, proof text to show him that's not the case. Awesome. Well, I was hoping that was the case, but I wanted to double check. Keep yeah, going, brother. I appreciate brother. your show. It's, it's been incredible. Praise God. Take care. Talk to you too, buddy. Bye. Okay, bye. Um, quickly, this says, uh, you had a guy named Wyatt calling your last program. This is from Jordan. Uh, this view of seeing that the Christian institution, the ism, we need to cast out, uh, but not the believer of that ism, is a hard concept to grasp for most. I believe the eschatological view of a believer plays a huge role in this. So how you view the end times is really important, he's saying. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Right there, I believe, is the mindset of most evangelical believers today. Jesus said people will say and do things in his name, but they will be false. So even if a person says they believe in Christ, you have to be wary. Well, it's an it is interesting, prior to that verse, you see the teaching, by their fruits you shall know them. Oh boy, here is the context and reality of all this. One, this was directed to the Jews in Jesus' generation, not you or me. Two, there was great false Christs and disciples prior to the fall of Jerusalem. We can see this from scripture and historic findings by Josephus. Three, it is by the fruit of the Spirit we shall know them. Since the old covenant has been destroyed and every believer has God's law written on their heart and mind, no man can teach them, Hebrew 8, we discern everything by the fruit of the Spirit, not the individuals themselves. This is how we can cast out the institutions. If they produce a bad fruit, we will not partake of it. But we will always have to bear the individual believers burden with the body of Christ, whatever that might be. By doing this, we fill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. So you can see that seeing the fulfillment of Scripture, eschatology, with the fall of Jerusalem goes a long way in seeing the correct content and meaning of this verse. We have to live in the new covenant, not the old. Let us love an agape love of unconditionally that Christ admonishes us to do and bear each other's burdens. I hope that made some sense. Really quickly, before we go to Mark in Ireland, uh, uh, this made me laugh out loud. Last week, <laughs> he says, hey, Sean, I listened to episode uh, whatever last week and noticed your reference to Lorraine Botner. And I said Lorraine Botner is a, a Calvinistic scholar and that she... Uh, says this and she says that. In case it has not yet been brought to your attention, he is not a she. <laughs> he says, please bar pardon me for correcting you. Bert Stride Lorraine Botner 
was an American theologian, teacher, and author in the Reformed tradition. He is best known for his works on predestination, Roman Catholicism, and postmillennial eschatology. And, you know, I am such an idiot. I see Lorraine. I don't look up to see what Lorraine's sex is. I just assume Lorraine's a female, and I got caught. So really good call, and it did make me laugh. Let's go to Mark in Ireland. Mark has something witty to say, I'm sure. Everybody, hold on to your horses. Here he goes. It's the Mark Show. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, mate? Good. What's up, Mark? That's terrible. <laughs> That's the worst British accent I've ever heard. <laughs> I wasn't being British. I was being Australian. <laughs> oh, really? Could have fooled me. So what's going? What do you know what? Do you know what paralipsis is? Paralipsis. Yeah. A uh, girl with a couple mouths? <laughs> no. Paralipsis is referring to something by not referring to it. For example, I never talk about your ponytail. <laughs> See? Just a little bit of wisdom there from Ireland. Listen, that was a heavy show tonight. I'm going to have to watch that a few times. Now, it's not because, you know, I can't understand it. It's just because of the late hour over here, 10 to 4 in the morning. And I happen to know that it's, uh, it's Liam Neeson Day as well as everything else. So happy Liam Neeson Day, everybody. Not sure what that means. Happy Liam Neeson Day. I can't hear you, by the way. You sound like you're down the bottom of a well. What, does, anyway. what is Liam Neeson? Why is there a Liam Neeson Day? Because you're about to be taken back to the very first time I called, right? And one of the things that you kind of suggested was that you'd, you know, you'd be interested in maybe uh, kind of meeting up with me if I go over there and talk about having me on the show. And I've thought about it. You've thought about it? I've thought about it. And? And? I have an answer. And? Well, the, the answer kind of depends on you accepting one stipulation and one stipulation only. What would that be? After the show. After the show. Okay? Yeah. Now, I'm coming over there. You think I'm, you think I'm not, but I am. I'm coming over there. After the show, and this is a yes or no, and you have to say yes or no straight down the barrel of camera one. So camera one, push in. Okay. Right and close into that big South Park face of his. All right. Yes or no? Yeah. After the show, mm -hmm. Sean McCraney mm -hmm. versus Magnificent Mark from Ireland, mm -hmm. Lip Sync Battle. We're doing what together? Lip Sync Battle. A Lip Sync Battle? Yep. Is, are, you yes picking, no. are you picking the song? We pick songs for each other. And uh, the, we can have guests, we can have snacks, and people can come along and judge it, and yes or no. You got a deal. You got a deal, yes. Yes? Yes. Everyone hear it? Everyone heard it. All right, Wendy, you're on my team. Well, you, you got a deal when you get over here. I guess it's going to be in the summer of 2017. Afterward, yep. we're going to the pub, and we're going to have a lip sync battle. Or we can do it in the studio after the show. Well, the studio is a, is, is a pub. You should see this place. That'll do. All right, my friend. All right, well, listen, Wendy, you're on my team. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, brother. Thank you very, thank you very much for putting up with me. And McCraney, you're dead. You're dead. When I get there, you're dead. I'm going to slaughter you in a lip sync battle. All right. By the way, I don't think we're allowed to call it a lip sync battle because of copyright reasons. I think we'll call it a mime off. Um, you know. All right, you got it. Love you, brother. All right. All right, take care of yourself. Good luck. Okay, thanks. You too. Bye. Let's go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. John, you need to turn your computer down. Oh, you're after we're on, right? All right, good. Let me turn this and just turn it all the way down. Well, we won't hear anything. Okay, uh, 
I didn't think I was going to get on. It looks like we're going to run a little close on time here. But uh, I, re- I read through your entire book, uh, Night to a Gunfight, and uh, listened to it on the on the uh, audio. Yeah. And uh, all the way through it, absorbed it like a sponge. I agree with everything in there. Uh, all these contradictions in the Bible, I know most of them have an answer. Yeah. However, people use the Bible, just like you said, you know, they'll take a quote out of it and use it uh, like some Calvinists in any way. And they have got to memorize chapter and verse, everything coming out. They can make a good story. However, you got to take into account a lot of things about the Bible. You got to take in the translations, four different translations from the time it came from Hebrew, uh, and even there was a couple of translations from Hebrew in the Old Testament, two or three actually. And you know, don't have time to go through all this, but there are no English translations that are inerrant, none. You can look it up and see it. I mean, there are differences in translations, lost in translation. Yeah. I want to bring up one other thing. The earliest saints of the Catholic Church were from the Flavius family. And I think you're probably aware of most of the Flavius family. There are several members. Yeah. Uh, But how about Flavius Josephus? How about his family, his wife's family? That that was part of the early saints. Now, these are the saints, the founding fathers of the Catholic Church. Romans, all of them. Flavius Vespucius. I'm probably not saying the word exactly right, but anyway, he was the general that killed the Jews during the big battle, hmm. and he became emperor of Rome. Mm-hmm. Then we go on to Flavius Clemens. Hmm. Uh, these, these are founders of the Roman Catholic Church during the first 200 years. We don't have any original manuscripts. And, and you know, this is the Roman hierarchy running the church. So I don't know how much we can count on all of it, and I don't want to put any negatives in anybody's mind here, but still you have to take into account what we're dealing with with the Scriptures. Yeah. Some people say the Word is preserved, God preserved it. Well, I want to say something about that quickly. There are writings older than the Bible, 5,000-year-old by the Sumerians, which are in tablets, clay tablets, and they're preserved. I'm sure he could have done it. If he really wanted to preserve it perfectly, he could have done it. For some reason, he didn't. I don't know why. But he warns in the Scriptures that men will add to and take away in the book of Revelations. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we're out of time. I'm not going to go much farther with this. There's a lot of other points I'd like to bring up, but it's something to think about, folks. Before you go out there and start quoting, quoting chapter and verse to people and tell them they're going to hell or doing this or that or whatever, or they're, they're elected, and, you know, take some things, use some common sense, and have the Spirit of God. And if it doesn't make sense to you, slow down. Yeah. Talk to Jesus a little. Ask what he would do. Get some, get some answers from the Holy Spirit to go with it. Love that. It, it, it just doesn't come letters only. It doesn't come letters only. There's no way you're going to get all the truth that way. Love it. But anyway, that's it. That's it. Thanks so much, John. Great insights. Really appreciate it, my brother. Okay. Okay. God bless. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. And uh, just to put the topper on that, because we always have to put the disclaimer, uh, I I agree with what John said completely, and I also love the Bible. Uh, It's not going to be the thing. That's my indication. Stop. It's not going to be the thing that saves us. Jesus saves us. So I loved what he had to say. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake the storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light 